0: Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm Jody Henke. Today's podcast is brought to you by ESN Smart Nitrogen. Learn more about the industry's environmentally smart nitrogen at smartnitrogen.com. Sam Ethington grew up on a farm, went to college, and earned a doctorate in plant breeding. He became the chief technology officer for Corteva in January of 2021. Successful Farming's Gil Gullickson talks with Sam about his observations in the plant breeding industry and its future.
1: I know you're from uh, Illinois Farm. Could you give me a little background on where you grew up?
2: West central Illinois. So if you kind of take the Galesburg, Peoria, Macomb sort of triangle in that part of the state, we're sort of in the middle. So Fulton County is the county we're in. Little town of Ellisville and Avon. Avon's where I went to school at. So family farm, actually, uh, there's four brothers and. We are the sixth generation on the family farm. Two of my brothers still farm today in the operation. My mom's still on the, on the family farm. So that's kind of cool. And it was your classic when I was growing up, grain and livestock operations. So a lot of cattle, a lot of hogs, corn, soybeans, a couple thousand acres of row crops
1: and still that way today. So two of my brothers are still farming there today. What uh, prompted you to uh, go to the University of Illinois and pursue agronomy and later on plant breeding? So
2: my parents were pretty adamant for us kids to go to college and get a degree, and, and I enjoyed sort of the plant side of it. So agronomy was a nice natural fit to learn more about how to do you know the agronomics to produce a crop. And, and my dad was a, a seed dealer for a long time, and so you're always kind of associated with the seed part and the different hybrids and varieties. And, and so it's kind of cool to figure out what those were like. And so uh, I went to school and actually my intention was to come home and farm. But, you know, at the time it was, the economics weren't the best to come back on the farm. The farm probably wasn't big enough for, you know, my dad was still farming and one of my little brothers was farming and would have taken quite a bit of expansion and not sure the family was up to that. So, started doing some internships and one of them was with the seed company and had the opportunity to learn about what a plant breeder does and the variation that's in plants and how they manipulate it and really said wow this is this is cool this is like cool science and could relate to it on the family farm because it was so impactful for us what the specific hybrids and varieties we grew and what they how they performed. So I opted to go to graduate school. A uh, plant breeder's there kind of talked me into it, and and I had the simple goal of well, I'd love to help create some corn hybrids that you know we could plant on our family farm. Right? I thought that'd be pretty cool that you know to help develop a hybrid and then actually have your your dad and your brothers actually grow it. Be kind of a neat connection. So that's what got me into graduate school and uh, plant breeding and genetics, and I kind of went from there.
1: You know, compared to when you started versus where it is now, how has plant breeding changed? I mean, what was the technology back then versus what it is now?
2: Yeah, big, big shift. And that's a cool thing about the plant breeding industry. You know, we've been doing modern plant breeding, let's call it a little over 100 years, uh, and a lot of technical changes that have occurred. And so as I started going to graduate school, we were just starting to figure out how you could use DNA analysis in a plant breeding program and it was still very experimental you didn't know how to really create all the dna results um, you didn't know what it meant you didn't know how to use it in your plant breeding program so as i did my phd it was focused on how do we use molecular marker dna technology in a plant breeding program and so as i came out of graduate school really the plant breeding industry at the time was very much what i call phenotypic based selection right you know you planted stuff in the field, skilled plant breeders went out there and evaluated it for diseases and various characteristics, took a lot of visual notes. We ran combines through to measure yield and all these characteristics. And you had all this information and data and crunch time in the fall. And you crunched through it, you know, 24 seven, make what you think are the best selections and you go do it again. And today you look at how we use DNA information where DNA analysis is done on every plant that gets produced you know from that we predict what all these different traits should be and plant breeders make selections based on the DNA profile before it even gets to the field now. We still take everything to the field to confirm and really test it but you do a lot more in a laboratory than you do out in the field and now instead of Plant breeders and people walking through the field collecting data. We have drones flying over the fields collecting all the data and it's higher quality and a lot easier to get and a lot more characteristics. So, and then the last one that's really quite different for me is it was a lot of hand labor, process seed, get all the seed ready. And we would ride on the back of the planters, you know, dumping seeds. If you've ever done that or seen that, right? Today it's all automated you know you have automated systems that process it package it planners are all automated and it's it's a lot more like a farmer just driving across a field nowadays but you're doing very uh, high precision sort of experiments as that machine is going across the field so a lot of change in how we do selection how we get our data and actually how we even do the process in the last 25 years
1: you know i did that article for our mid-november issue about crop breeding and i compared it to the uh I don't know, you had to be a real hardcore baseball fan to know who Gil Hodges was, but I liked him because he had my first name, but I talked about a slump he was there. Bob Nielsen talked about at Purdue that when you look at, it was just amazing from the Civil War until the 1930s, there was no change in corn yields. It was 26 bushel over those complete 70 years. And there have been some changes since then, but no real recent step change. Um, Might farmers be seeing... More higher yields because of all this breeding technology that you've you've seen.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the long term trends, I think even with this year uh, yield levels at what 177, it's what the USDA is saying now. You know, we still see that nice genetic gain, year over year increase a little bit. But you know, let's call it two bushels or so a year we're getting in corn in the U.S. Now, in the early years, uh, it was a little faster because the transformation from open pollinated to hybrid crops was so dramatic it made a little bit higher increase smaller base that you're working off of base yield but uh yeah we continue to see that And i think what that is a function of and you see this in systems that are under selection it doesn't matter if it's plants or animals or insects whatever it is the longer you do selection the harder and harder it gets to keep getting a response to that selection right and the technology that companies have brought in the plant breeding that we talked about have enabled, you know, plant breeders to continue to make that genetic gain in a system that's probably uh, getting tougher and tougher to do that on. Right? We know the yield potential of this crop is still way off the charts, our average yield to the long way to go uh, to get there. So yeah, I, I you know, you look at this technology that it really is fundamentally helping us make that improvement year over year.
1: Why the switch to Corteva?
2: You know, a couple of reasons. Um, you know, For me, the company is very focused on, on farmers. Uh, it's a pure play ag company. So 27,000 employees get up every year and all we think about are farmers and how can we help farmers around the world. And I like that culture. I think it's, it brings that commonality across all of our people, that common purpose and vision. That, you know makes us all aligned on what we're trying to do. It was an opportunity for me to obviously to be the CTO to run credible R and D organization and have all the pieces, you know, from plant breeding and genomics and biotech to crop protection and opportunities down the road with digital tools to bring it all together and help direct that personally was very appealing to me and so great company all the heritage pieces that that we got to build off of. Pure play ag, and it's a wonderful
0: chance to join a great RD group. Sam has a vision for the future. When we come back, he talks about technologies and plant breeding improvements coming down the pike. Stay tuned.
3: I'm a hard working nitrogen granule just like anyone else. I never used to take this nitrogen gig too seriously, but now I have a wife and kids to think about. So I wear this ESN polymer coating protects me from nitrogen loss on the job site until crops need me. No worries. The ESN coating makes me a smarter, more responsive nitrogen. Want to learn more? Come check me out at smartnitrogen.com.
1: As you look out towards the future, what kind of technologies excite you? I put it in a couple of buckets. Um, When I think
2: about the plant side, it really is about gene editing. Uh, If you look at the impact biotech has had on the industry—it's pretty amazing when you look at what we've done. And yeah, you know, I would say every indication is you know, gene editing platforms are probably going to be bigger. You know, the opportunity to really fundamentally transform plant breeding again and extract more out uh, of the genetic variation that's there—the uh, opportunity to bring more traits and more solutions to farmers—and and it's really needed. If you look at the pace of Climate change and what we need to bring solutions for a grower, we need to get faster bringing some of this technology to farmers. And so, that one to me on the seed side is going to be the future of, of a lot of things. On the crop protection side, what's really cool is the type and the nature of the active ingredients and formulations that we've been building. They're winning a lot of green chemistry awards. Their profiles for safety and environmental fates are much better than what we've had on some of our older chemistry use rates are way down on a lot of things. So so I love how we're rebuilding what is ag crop protection and the very nature of that chemistry and then you know, bolting onto that things like biologics as an example to really complement that system. So those two are pretty cool. And then uh, I think down the road here, there's still a lot of work to be done, but you know, bringing all this together with a, a digital system that information for a farmer is, is going to be the nice way to, to integrate the complete package
1: and digital lag it seems like along with other things that it's still very hot a lot of technology has been developed but yep. is there a missing link are we missing anything in that whole digital lag picture
2: a couple of things you know, you know my experiences of, uh, on the farm have kind of taught me about it one you know the tools and the systems and the information it really has to be simple and easy and things really have to be connected and so i think about it on my own family farm and you know and when it's time to plant crops it's time to plant right and you jump into a tractor and you start planning and all of a sudden you know the system goes down and maybe it's not collecting data or sending data you're just not going to wait on it right you're not going to try to sit there and mess around with it or have a service call or wait a couple of days for this and that, you're just going to keep planning, right? So uh, these systems have to be really simple, really robust at the actual user level because of the criticality of the time factor in, in the environment they operate in. And then the piece I think that's still been missing in digital in a lot of space is, is what do I do about it, right? What is the actual actionable insight at a farmer level, right? Great show me another map and show me some more data and show me more insights, but what do I do? And so I think the industry moving to how to help a farmer going through that experimentation process and understanding where to go or how to uh, look at different products on their farm. You know, I think we have a role in the industry to help facilitate that conversation and you know, where do you go with this stuff? And so those are the two on the bookends I'd say as an industry, we, do more at, uh, And if we continue to do more at that, I, I think the system continues to bring value
1: to farmers. You know, I was uh, reading a column you wrote a couple of years ago for your previous employer about limitations of digital ag. And there was one story about, uh, I think you looked at split planting rates and I think you were comparing two hybrids anyway, mm-hmm. and one of yep. them—it it seemed like the uh, analysis by Digital Egg—it just wasn't what was expected. Are, are there any limitations right. to Digital Egg?
2: Yeah, I know the article you're talking about, and basically the premise was: it comes back to what's the question you're trying to ask, and then how do you test that question on the farming operation? So in the research world, right, we're all used to. We understand our hypothesis and we have very clear experimental designs and how we go execute those experiments. And you try to control for all your variability and confounding factors to be able to answer the hypothesis that, that you're testing. And so, you know, if a farmer is wanting to understand, should I plant hybrid A or hybrid B, how they do that testing on their farm is really important to make sure they get the right answer about what's real versus what's an artifact. And so I'll share an example of what my dad always used to do. My dad knew the farms really well. He knew which ones yielded well and which ones didn't and which parts of what field typically was lower yielding than other parts of the field. And as seed companies would come and new salespeople would show up and say, hey, we'd like you to try this hybrid. It's a great new hybrid. And Maybe my dad was interested, maybe not. But he always put them in the worst fields and the worst parts of the fields. <laughs> and, and so he never had a chance to be successful because he, he had basically stacked the game against that salesperson because maybe he just wanted free seed or maybe he didn't care. Right. And so I think that's really an important part as we look at you know, how to evaluate this stuff on the farm. And, and a lot of things that, you know, I was trying to point out in that article was there's a lot of companies out there doing stuff and they'll tell you they've done data science on your data and sometimes that leaves the impression that well this must be valid and the reality is if the data going in is not very good the analysis coming out is not very good either and so if there's lots of confounding factors with planting dates and soil types and water levels and fertility levels and you're just trying to compare hybrid a versus b you may or may not get the right answer and that was the just for farmers to be aware because you don't want to make the wrong decision right you think hybrid A is better than B, but in reality it's the other way around. okay, that's a very detrimental decision to your farming operation. There's a lot to make sure that the data is valid, how the testing's done, and you know questioning how the stuff was done versus hey, it's in this app on my phone, it must be right well, maybe not.
0: Everyone has an opinion on carbon markets. When we come back, Sam shares his thoughts on how carbon sequestration and the carbon markets need to evolve. Stay tuned.
3: You know, not all nitrogen works as hard as I do. My ESN polymer coating means I can stay out in the field longer, up to 80 days. Those other guys? First hot wind or heavy rain and they're out. They're scared of soil bacteria and standing water, too. But not me. It's why ESN is the leading controlled-release nitrogen in broadacre agriculture. See for yourself. Just check out smartnitrogen.com.
1: This summer at the Corteve Media Day in July, when you talked, you uh, mentioned carbon markets. And it made me smile because I did a piece on climate change seven years Years ago, that was on the cover of successful farming. And surprisingly, about half the response was favorable, but about half the response was hoax. There's nothing to it. And now I find that farmers, when they find out they can get paid for doing some things that sequester greenhouse gases, they may not believe in climate change, but they believe in money. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: <You know>, exactly. <laughs> what, uh, you know, when it comes to Corteva and, and carbon markets, I know you folks have a, a program. Where do you see the future of this going?
2: It's a very interesting one for agriculture because one, there's, there's no doubt, you know, soils can sequester a lot of carbon. I think there are still scientific questions as an industry we have to answer about how much is being sequestered, what methodology and process is best for that. You know, what happens if you have to disturb that soil some point in the next 10 years and how much disturbance. And so I think there's a number of things that need to really happen around. The persistence of the carbon and understanding that, as I tell people, right, you want to make sure these are legitimate, valid. Nobody wants to be misleading and nobody wants to be misled. The second one I think has to happen here is we have a lot of different systems out there, a lot of companies, uh, a lot of open markets. And I think as farmers, you know, it can be confusing. Sometimes I have to really stop and try to sort it out and understand what nuances of the different programs are. And so... Making sure we're educating, being transparent, people really understand the programs are important. And we're trying to do a lot of just making sure people understand what our operate is. And then ultimately, I think the value per acre has to go up. Today, the payment levels and the value of the carbon credit really does not cover all the costs. And so today i look at it as it's farmers who want to do this already for other reasons or they see value in this for other reasons and right now the carbon is an add on but i think down the road you could imagine a world where the value of the credits get higher and higher and higher you know at some point you know it starts to be as valuable as the commodity crop itself and then it becomes a very interesting environment in that situation of What are you doing? How are you doing it? And and what's going on? And I think that will drive innovation in our farming systems. So I'm excited about it. I I tell people to understand it as you're getting into it. And I think we've got to see a little bit more on the science and the value continue to evolve in the system.
1: You know, this is just kind of a gut feeling on my part. But when you talk with a farmer and if you ask them, do you like growing corn or soybeans? Nine times out of ten, they'll say growing corn. I don't know if it's just more of it to handle or whatever. But, yeah. you know, it kind of seems to me the soybeans have always kind of gotten a bad rap when compared to corn. They just don't yield as well. You know, they're weed that I grow between corn. What kind of things are you folks doing to get farmers excited about soybeans?
2: I hear that question a lot. When are you ever going to make soybeans yield as much? And when you go back and you actually look at the data and you start talking to people about it, it's like, well, you know, actually the yield increases in soy if actually been pretty good in the United States uh, and on a percentage basis they're actually not too far off of corn so there's there's more improvements there in the base germplasm and genetics than maybe sometimes um, we always recognize because the base level is so low too. We're obviously doing a lot in giving farmers more choice in how they want to manage their uh, their weeds on the field with our Enlist system and creating that option out there for them we're doing a lot, obviously, on how to improve the base genetics through our, our plant breeding programs, and then we're taking a look at you know, what are other traits. If you think about output traits, you know, what's the value of oil with renewable oils coming on stronger modifications in the protein levels, as people want some different types of proteins or different uh, uses of it, or even in the north where our protein levels kind of running a little short on our soybeans in general, right? So making sure we make that solid. And then it's a lot of, a lot of stuff in soybeans is around disease tolerance. There's a lot of things that like to damage soybeans. So we're doing a lot of work on really making sure the disease resistance is where it needs to be.
1: This article is going to come out in February. Um, is there anything you have planned that you're doing in February? Any conferences or events or anything like that that you're planning on doing?
2: we may have some opportunities to start talking a little bit more about our pipeline and our research in that time frame, And then we still are wanting to do an innovation showcase, you know, maybe in that August, early September range here at the Johnston facility. We, we had it set up last year and then with COVID and a few changes, we opted to delay it. And so we're headed down a path to talk more about our pipeline and some projects and opportunities. And so, you know, there might be a couple of things we want to get back to you on that we got some specific new innovations coming out that you might be interested in hearing more about.
1: Is there anything I haven't asked you?
2: You know, the one I maybe would just would like to just make sure we reiterate a little bit is um, sometimes ag crop protection is kind of getting a negative sort of reputation or stories about it. And I would just ask people to really stop and look at the very nature of the new sort of crop protection that's coming to the market. It's quite different than what we used to think about. When you look at some of the use rates and safety profiles, it's much, much better. And so let's make sure we we look at all evolution and changes and not get too hung up on maybe some of the stories coming out of other parts of the world.
0: Thanks to Gil Gullickson and Sam Ethington for their thoughts today, to Nutrient Egg Solutions for sponsoring the podcast, and thank you for listening. For Successful Farming, I'm Jody Henke.